Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the 18th century Prussian monarch Frederick the Great. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include discussions of parental abuse. We'll be talking about period-typical homophobia, including executions for homosexuality. We will mention a relationship between an adult and a minor. We'll also be talking about period-typical misogyny. We'll also be mentioning sex work and sex workers, and there'll be a few descriptions of sex, though they're not particularly graphic. We'll also be mentioning STIs and mentioning castration. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other episodes. They all have content warnings at the start. So before we get started talking about Frederick, welcome to season five of Queer as Fact. We're very excited to be back. If you listened to the final episode of our last season, you would have been expecting a different episode today. We did say we would be talking about the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. And we know that is an episode we've been promising for a while and one that our patrons voted for us to do. Unfortunately, because of social isolation measures in Melbourne at the moment, the three of us are able to gather together, but we're not able to record with Irene. And we'd really like to have her and her historical knowledge in that episode. So we're holding off on that episode until some of those measures are lifted and we can record with Irene again. Lastly, before we actually get into the episode, I want to thank the many people who have requested that we talk about Frederick the Great. This is actually our most requested episode, so I hope you're all very excited to hear it. I'd particularly like to thank Tumblr user Historical Shenanigans, who suggested we do this episode back in May of 2017. You have waited three years. Maybe they don't listen anymore. Yeah, maybe you've moved on with your life completely. You could be anywhere right now. Mm. But if you're still around, I hope you enjoy this. I'd also like to thank Tumblr user Isle of Innisfree, Aaron Starr, Philippe, and David Taranto, who have all also suggested this episode. Okay, let's get started. Go, I have very high expectations on you, Alice. Okay. Given that this is apparently the most exciting game. <laughs> Ever to gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so first up, it's geography time. Frederick the Great is king of Prussia. Where's Prussia? So this is Europe. <laughs> <laughs> like Germany, mostly. Okay, yeah, pretty accurate. Pretty accurate. I'll accept. So there are two bits of Prussia and they're not next to each other. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I spent so long when I started researching the episode being like, but 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 Prussia's there. But but why is he here? In Prussia. I don't understand. <sighs> So yeah, there's a bit of Prussia, which is on like the south shore of the Baltic Sea, where like Lithuania and like northern Poland are. Uh And there's a bit of Prussia that's in the bit of Germany, which has like Berlin in it, Uh like northeast Germany. They're both Prussia, what Frederick rules over, but they're not side by side. What's in between them? Poland. Poland. That was geography. I think we did pretty good compared to when Irene thought Texas was on the west coast of America. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Frederick. So Frederick was born on the 24th of January in 1712 in Berlin, and he was the first surviving son of Frederick William I of Prussia, who was king of Prussia, mm-hmm. and Frederick William's wife, Sophia Dorothea, who was the daughter of George I of England. Is there going to be a lot of entangling of European royal houses in this episode? I've tried to not talk about it in too much depth, but like, yeah, okay, there it is. Yeah. I believe Frederick William and Sophia Dorothea are cousins. Yeah, okay. Frederick William was very intensely about the military he was very against like 
performing arts or pleasure gardens or studying literature or any of those kinds of things. He was just really about saving all your money and then spending it on the army. This is like the stereotypical historical bad father of a gay man. (laughs) Yeah, he absolutely is the stereotypical bad father of a gay man. He was notoriously obsessed in particular, and this isn't on topic, I just wanted to tell you because it's (laughs) bizarre. Um, He was notoriously obsessed with creating a regiment of giant soldiers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you had to be over I believe it's over a Prussian six feet which is slightly taller than our six feet oh, about okay. six foot two wait explain why oh yeah no this was a continental European thing this is the whole like Napoleon was actually taller than we oh okay, yeah so, yeah it's right, that yeah. thing like they hadn't fully standardized what a foot was and we standardized a smaller foot than some countries were using mm. so you had to be about six foot two to join this regiment and he got soldiers from all over Europe and paid or coerced or whatever them to joining this regiment and he used to paint portraits of them all from memory. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't want to tell you. This just. What do you mean he painted pictures of them all from memory? It was his hobby. Because he loved his regiment of giant soldiers so much. So oh, that this was is what... a little horror. It, it is a little. Uh, I do have a quote that he said about this. I couldn't find a primary source for this quote, but it's around a lot. So like, I cannot confirm that he did say this, but the quote is the most beautiful girl or woman in the world would be a matter of indifference to me, but tall soldiers, they are my weakness. What? So wait, to be clear, this is a quote from Frederick William. Yes. We're talking about Frederick William right now. We're talking about, we're talking about the gay man's father. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. I don't have anything more to do with that information. (laughs) I just read and I was like, I mean, I can't not share this. So, so here we are i don't have anything more to say about that and that will never come up again so uh <laughs> enjoy okay thank you thank you for that i enjoyed it okay so ignoring giant soldiers frederick william is generally like as you said the stereotypical evil father of a gay man in early modern europe so frederick and frederick william were complete opposites basically mm-hmm Frederick hated all the things his father loved, like hunting, and he jumped at the sound of gunfire. Frederick William described the performing arts as the work of Satan (laughs) and described court academics as royal buffoons. Frederick, on the other hand, amassed himself a secret library of French literature and he would sneak off after his military exercises to practice his flute. He was a very talented flautist. Frederick William described Frederick as, quote, an effeminate boy without a single manly inclination who cannot ride or shoot. When he caught Frederick practicing his flute while wearing his silk French dressing gown, he had the dressing gown burnt and he sold off many of Frederick's books in his secret library. Oh, that's such a look. Yeah. I'm going to go put on my silk dressing gown and practice the flute. I love that. So what happened? Practice the flute. (laughs) All right, all right. Um, What happened was he'd come back from his military exercises and he'd do his hair up in a French style and put on his silk French dressing gown and practice his flute. And um, one day he was doing this and Carter, who was, we'll discuss his relationship with Carter, but someone who's very, very close to him, most likely a romantic partner, uh-huh. came running in and said, look, your father's coming. You need to put the flute away. And so then Carter and the flute teacher got in the cupboard to hide. Oh, God. <laughs> Frederick quickly changed out of the dressing gown back into his military uniform, but his father came in before he had a chance to redo his hair. So he's in his military uniform, but he's still got his French hairdo, and his father went, well, I know what you've been doing. Didn't find him in the cupboard, but did find the dressing gown. So he's just, like, really into France. He's really into France because France at the time is kind of seen as the place of, like, culture culture and new ideas and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, so that's why he really likes France. 
throughout his life, he's very like, he's very dismissive of like German, so Germanist language of Prussia, very dismissive of like German language literature and all that kind of stuff. And is always talking about how much better French stuff is. Mm. Imagine that's very popular when he's the king. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't go well. Yeah. Yeah. I did read one article that was like, Frederick's negative attitude to German literature was actually very beneficial to German literature because like German writers were so angry. They were like, we're just going to produce all this amazing literature to prove him wrong. So, yeah. So during his teens, Frederick formed several close relationships with other boys his age and other young men. Two notable ones, one which I've mentioned, was a lieutenant in his early 20s named Hans Hermann von Carter. And another notable relationship was with another boy his age when he was about 16 called Peter Karl Christoph von Keith. Close male-male friendships are very normal at this time. So I do just want to note straight away that his relationships were considered outside of the norm in how close they are. So we have a quote from his sister Wilhelmina, for example, about his relationship with Keith, where she says, Though I had noticed that Frederick was on more familiar terms with this page than was proper in his position, I did not know how intimate the friendship was. So she finds out how intimate none of her writing we have a lot of her writing none of her writing talks about oh okay a romantic relationship between frederick and keith but she obviously thinks that they've you know oversteps the line of a normal male Mm -hmm. friendship and she is questioning how intimate this friendship is Mm -hmm. and frederick william soon became suspicious of this relationship with keith and sent keith away into the army so frederick during his teens was very very unhappy with the way his father treated him with the expectations that were on him to be interested in the military and these kinds of things when that obviously just not how he is as a person and in mid 1729 frederick carter and keith hatched a plan to run away together to england where frederick's mother had arranged a marriage for frederick to her niece so frederick's cousin princess amelia frederick had never met amelia so it seems likely that he wanted to run away just to get away from his father and his life rather than because he had any interest in amelia what year was he born again sorry 1712 so he's like in his late teens at this time Unfortunately, Frederick William got wind of the plan to run away before Frederick and Carter got anywhere. They were hoping to meet up with Keith in Belgium and continue together to England. So Frederick and Carter were caught and arrested. Keith did get away to England. Frederick William was absolutely furious when he found out that they'd been planning to escape. Partly was because he suspected that the plan was part of a wider English anti-Prussian conspiracy. Prussia had quite a bad relationship with England at the time. But also he was probably very angry because he was suspicious of the relationship between Frederick and Carter. Four years before, Frederick William had passed laws making sodomy in Prussia punishable by being burnt alive. Oh, wow. And um, when he found out about the plan to escape, the first thing he demanded of Frederick was, did you seduce Carter or did Carter seduce you? I did read one scholar that said, you know, he may just mean there, did you kind of make this plan and encourage Carter into it or did Carter make this plan and encourage you into it? But it's also quite likely that he suspected a relationship between them. Hmm. Frederick was imprisoned for a short time and Frederick William had Carter sentenced to death. Frederick William ensured that the execution would take place outside the window of Frederick's cell, so Frederick would have to watch it happen. Oh, that's horrible. That's so Frederick William up. is an awful man. Yeah, yeah that's really yeah. When Frederick saw Carter being led to his death, he called out, My dear Carter, a thousand pardons, please. Carter saluted Frederick and responded, My prince, there is nothing to apologize for. Frederick fainted before he saw Carter beheaded. Well, that's good. 
at least. I guess. Yeah. Also, I am kind of thought it was about to be burned to death, and I'm glad that didn't happen. Yeah, that's true. I did say that the punishment for sodomy was being burned to death, but he's not being convicted of okay. sodomy. He's being convicted of desertion because okay. he was in the army mm. and Which, tried to run away. Well, and also because I imagine Frederick William doesn't want to acknowledge mm. that he's convicting a man for well, sodomy related to his son. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, following this, the marriage with Princess Amelia of England never went ahead. Frederick William was very against it and deeply suspicious of the English. And in 1733, Frederick was married to Elizabeth Christine of Bevan. Frederick described himself as overwhelmed with revulsion at the thought of the marriage. It's possible this reaction was because the marriage was arranged by Frederick William, and so Frederick was obviously very against it, because Frederick William is an awful man. And it's also possible that he described himself as overwhelmed with revulsion because he wasn't attracted to women, and therefore spending his life married to one was an awful prospect for him. He did have a few relationships with women in his early life. He once wrote to the philosopher Voltaire that it was a woman who had been his first love and inspired him to begin writing poetry, something he continued doing for his whole life. But from his early 20s, at least, Frederick seems exclusively interested in men. He famously wrote after Prussia's disastrous defeat at the Battle of Colleen in 1757, Fortune has turned her back on me. She has it in for me. She's a woman and I'm not that way inclined. Okay. So that quote mentions one relationship with women. Do we know more about these women? We do know a bit about them. Most of what we know comes from the writings of his sister, Wilhelmina. So when Frederick was 16, he traveled to Dresden, which was the court of Saxony with his father. And according to Wilhelmina, he had a relationship there with the illegitimate daughter of the Saxon ruler. Okay. And also a relationship with an opera singer who was there. It's quite possible this did happen. I don't have a huge amount of information about Mm -hmm. it, except what Wilhelmina tells us. Wilhelmina wasn't in Dresden at the time. Oh, okay. So it's not necessarily first-hand information. He was also close to another woman in his early 20s named Eleanor von Reich. I'm probably saying that wrong. And we do have some poetry that he wrote to her, which is quite effusive. Mm. So I do have some information about these women that I didn't include because of time. And I am willing to believe that he was interested in these women. But definitely from kind of his 20s onwards, we don't have any more interest in women. And he is explicitly saying things like, I'm not that way inclined. Mm. So whether he just changed as he grew up or whether he was kind of... Experimenting and then done experimenting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not 100% sure, really. Okay. But he definitely had no interest in a marriage with a woman, or at least with Elizabeth. In the early years of their marriage, Frederick did make a show of being in love with his wife, which I say is a show because he's also saying things like, I was filled with revulsion at the idea of this marriage. But in a letter in 1739, for example, so when they'd been married for about six years, he writes to her, I very much look forward to being back in Rheinsberg and more to the pleasure of kissing you. A year later, however, Frederick told a friend that he'd never been in love with Elizabeth and that he only never slept with her out of duty. And his letters to her become kind of increasingly perfunctory and even increasingly rude as time goes on. From 1740, Frederick and Elizabeth lived apart. So he was in the Prussian military capital of Potsdam most of the time, or he was away fighting wars with the army. And she was at court in Berlin. She describes herself in letters to her brother as feeling like a prisoner. So Frederick would never come and see her and she wasn't allowed to go and visit him. He would even sometimes invite her attendants to events, but not her. Oh, rude. Oh, yeah. that's awful. Yeah, he's awful to her. Um, it's not her fault you're gay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, like, it does seem like he's kind of reflecting some of the treatment that his father 
mm. meted to him onto her. Mm. His father was kind of imprisoning him to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Remember. He was very, like, his life was very controlled by his father in his early life. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like yeah. through neglect, he's doing a similar thing to his wife, which is yeah. really bad. It is really bad. Yeah, really bad. It's also quite ironic I guess because like one of the positives Frederick found in being married was now that he was married he was more seen as being his own man and he could act a lot more independently from his father and kind of start to escape from that control of his father but at the same time he's doing this to Elizabeth mm-hmm. he would frequently insult her in letters and even in public in front of the court in 1763 for example when he saw her for the first time in seven years his first comment to Elizabeth in front of the court was madam has got fat oh my god also like wow he didn't see his wife for seven years during that time 1763 it had just been the seven years war so i assume that's (laughs) what seven years are completely coincidence (laughs) but like nonetheless so obviously this is very difficult for her but do we know any more about how like she feels about him like does she want a repaired relationship does she have some kind of care for him or does she manage to just kind of make her own little like life with a circle of friends or something like that or I don't know that much about her there was a narrative for a long time in biographies which obviously is no longer being put out because it's not great that she was in love with him and had this unrequited love for him the entire time Mm. and you know was always just kind of trying to make the relationship work because she was always in love with him i really hope that's not the case yeah probably we do have letters from her like we have that letter to her brother that i mentioned where she says she feels like a prisoner and she talks about how much she's suffering basically So she was having a really, really hard time, but I don't really know how much she was able to make her life for herself, surrounded by her attendants in a kind of different, probably female community. Frederick had very little interest in court and like court etiquette, you know, like sucking up to people and organizing parties Mm. and all that kind of stuff that goes along with being an important international figure. So she'd do a lot of kind of that stuff. Okay. But whether she was happy with that, I do not know. Mm. So in 1740, Frederick William died. And Frederick ascended to the Prussian throne. He fought a bunch of wars throughout his reign, and I'm not going to talk about pretty much any of them, but I will talk about the first one. So one of his first actions as king was to invade Silesia, which is a province of the Holy Roman Empire. And he continued to fight wars against the Holy Roman Empire and various other European powers throughout his reign. And this invasion of Silesia and claiming of Silesia by Prussia was kind of the impetus for a lot of these wars and ongoing wars throughout his reign. So immediately before he'd become king in 1740, Frederick had written a text called Anti-Machiavel, which talks about how you should never fight war except for defensive reasons, among other things. His attack on Silesia was totally unprompted. There was no reason to do it except that he wanted that territory. So... His ideals that he wrote down, and he writes a lot of philosophy and stuff throughout his life, are not reflected in his actions as king. So you mentioned earlier that when he was younger, he seemed to sort of disparage and not be particularly interested in war and the military. Yeah. Was there like a marked change in his behavior? There was, and he does quite enjoy being in the army later in life. And we have letters from him where he's like in a military camp and he's writing to someone saying, I'm sick of being in this camp because I really just want to have a battle. I really just want to be out and fighting and like he's he's very into it really and he's seen as like one of Europe's great generals 
I don't know exactly when that change took place or if anything sparked that change. But yeah, there definitely is a change in his attitude to that. That's really interesting. Does he become more invested in the military before his father dies or after? Most of the quotes I've read are from this Salesian War. So that's just after his father dies. But he was in the army Hmm. for pretty much his whole life as soon as he was old enough to be in the army. So I don't know. Yeah, it's just interesting that, yeah, you know, he had this sort of antipathy towards his military training and he was writing things Mm. against war against war and then his father dies and suddenly he seems to become much more militaristic and much more yeah i think there could be an aspect of it of just having broken away from his father's influence and now seeing it as something that he's doing as king of his own bat like as his own action Mm. rather than something he's doing because his father's making him go into the army and his father's really into it he did for example he had a tutor a man named de sauer who was his tutor throughout his life and was still around after his father died and he delivered deliberately left him at home when he went to invade Silesia and said, I don't want to be doing this under the kind of watch of my tutor. This is something I want to be doing as my own man. So to some extent, it may have been sort of a way of stepping out of his father's shadow. Yeah, I think his invasion of Silesia was definitely partly inspired by that. Yeah. But I don't know how much that can be said to actually be enjoying the act of, you know, like being in a battle or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Which yeah. from the quotes that you just read, he seems to. Yeah. He was not in life enjoy that yeah he does people change people do change yeah and he definitely did change it's just wild for someone to go from this you know silk dressing gown wearing flautist to then become this great general yeah is a very i don't know it feels like a very fantasy story (laughs) um, transformation i mean it's not like he's left behind all those other things he was interested in. Mm. So, like, he patronized the performing arts a lot as king. He invited a lot of foreign scholars to court, all those kinds of things. So he's still interested in all those things he was always interested in. He's just now also interested in the military. Does that mean his economic management is uh, not great? Look, I don't know anything about economics. Okay. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just, you know, you were saying earlier that his father didn't want to spend money on anything except for the military. And yeah. it doesn't sound like for is doing less military it just sounds like he's doing more other stuff that is true well i mean he did gain the province of silesia which boosted prussia's population by 60 percent oh and contributed about half their tax income from then onwards so oh well so i guess that worked out for him (laughs) yeah that's definitely a factor but yeah prussia was at war a lot during his reign and did struggle because of that Mm. like economically and in terms of just like population as i suggested when i was talking about the performing arts and so forth frederick's reign was really the opposite of his father's in every way except for the fact that they both fought a lot of wars so frederick william had been a very pious protestant and had been very against the ideas of the enlightenment so conversations about you know whether god exists and that kind of stuff while frederick considered christianity quote an old metaphysical fiction stuffed with wonders contradictions and absurdities and he advocated for freedom of religion between protestants and catholics and with the publication of new ideas even ideas that he disagreed with so he was reasonably happy not always happy but reasonably happy for pamphlets to be published that were critical of him and those kinds of things he would allow that to go on which was very unusual Mm. at the time Mm. frederick also relaxed many of prussia's stricter laws and punishments including those against homosexuality but also more broadly things like he would take poverty into account in cases of theft he cut back a lot on torture and capital punishment he's reported by voltaire to have said i want everyone in my state to be able to pray to god and to make love as they see fit (laughs) wow (laughs) 
Frederick also made a point which is kind of in line with the ideas of the Enlightenment of treating all his subjects fairly and equally and kind of seeing himself as an equal to his subjects whose job was to serve them and run their country rather than as a person with power from God who was just allowed to order them around. He would raise his hat to anyone he rode past in the street, which was not at all the norm for a king and was something that he was quite remembered for and quite appreciated for by the population. And his successor would later complain that Frederick's willingness to listen to legal complaints from peasants had given them, quote, an unbridled passion for litigation. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Frederick does express all these ideas about, like, equality and so forth in his private correspondence, so I do think they were beliefs that he genuinely held. Yeah. But that being said, he doesn't always enact them in how he acts as king, and it is partly an image thing that he does do these things, like let peasants bring petitions to him and so forth. And when it didn't suit him he definitely was willing to just scrap these ideas Mm. so for example a local official recalls how he once asked frederick if his taxes could be reduced because his livestock had been decimated by disease and frederick responded my son today something is wrong with my left ear i can't hear well and just left okay yeah so like mixed i was starting to hold a good opinion of frederick (laughs) yeah i i just don't know how i feel about frederick Yeah, he was very popular with his subjects. So, like, if it was a PR stunt, his PR stunts worked. Mm. If it wasn't a PR stunt, like, yeah, he genuinely made them feel like he recognised them as equals. And And so you've said that they were fighting wars fairly constantly throughout his reign. Did he win a lot of wars? He did win a lot of wars. Like, internally, Prussia was suffering a fair bit, like, economically, and as I mentioned, like, in terms of just people dying in war a lot Mm. because of that. But, like, externally, Prussia was doing pretty well for itself compared to other European powers. Did Prussia expand over the course of his reign? Yes. Silesia is, like, the main obvious addition to Prussia in that, like, as I mentioned, it added, like, 60% to their population. Mm. But he did gain various territories as well during his reign. Mm. Yeah, like, he was pretty successful. So Frederick's father's death also meant that Frederick could be much more open about his interests in things that might be considered effeminate and about his relationships with men. His biographer Blanning, who is where a lot of my information came from for this podcast, describes the period following Frederick William's death as Frederick's coming out. One of the things that he did when he first became king was to build himself a summer palace called Sanssouci, and the decorations at this palace definitely attest to this being his period of coming out. So in the hallway, there was a bust of Charles XII of Sweden, who had no relationships with women that we know of and was generally thought to be gay. I haven't done any research on Charles XII. I don't know if he was interested in men or not. Maybe he was interested in no one. But Frederick thinks... Yeah. <laughs> Frederick intimate. thinks he's gay. That's okay. the general opinion, is that certainly, he's gay. Certainly it's a symbol of not being interested in women. Yeah. To yeah. have a bust of that man. Yeah, definitely true. In pride of place outside Frederick's library window, in its own little wrought iron pavilion, was a statue of Antinous, the lover of the Roman Emperor Hadrian. On the grounds of the palace was a building called the Temple of Friendship, which is like one of those little, you know, pavilions <laughs> on the... <laughs> You're already laughing and I haven't even told you about the Temple of Friendship. <laughs> I mean, just the name this is my gay gazebo <laughs> gay zebo. No, okay i actively made a choice not to say that why i think it was good i thought please. you would mock me please tell me about the temple of friendship <laughs> okay so first up i do want to say that the temple of friendship was ostensibly built as a tribute to his sister wilhelmina who had passed away Aww. in the 1750s but there are four pillars with each with a pair of classical figures on the pillar and all of those pairs of classical figures are people who are often considered to be male-male couples. So I don't have time to tell you about all these classical figures in terms of 
what their stories are, but you'll probably recognize the names. So on one, we have Orestes and Pylades. On one, we have Nisus and Euryalus. On one, we have Heracles and Philoctetes. And one, we have Theseus and Pirithus. Yeah, I don't have time to tell their stories, but you'll have to take my word for it that this is very gay. Yeah. <laughs> These are couples that have been recognized as couples for thousands of years. And obviously there's like nuance to that conversation, but like they definitely have gay connotations. Yeah, if you'd had one of these like sets yeah. of statues or one of these things, then maybe we could have a conversation about some nuance. But you know, <laughs> I don't think we really need to when it's four sets of statues, a bust, and what was the other thing? Another statue. And, and another statue. I'm not done. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Did he just read as much as he could, find every gay that he could possibly think of, and then just like be like, I need art of all of them? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Secret French library. Yeah, that's In what it's The secret. Temple of Friendship. <laughs> yeah. I also like, so he called it the Temple of Friendship. Yeah, that's that what it's called. really interesting to me. I feel like, did people get upset about that being like somewhat blasphemous? Uh, not that I'm aware of. No, I think that was mostly in keeping with the kind of conversations of the time where there's that kind of neoclassical like Mm. interest in like ancient Roman and ancient Greek pantheons and those kinds of things and it's not too out of line to have the temple of friendship like the french revolution is not that far away if you want to think about it that way when people are starting to rebel against like the divine right of kings and kind of religion yeah organized religion yeah like there are a lot of conversations against organized religion at this time so like yeah as far as i'm aware nobody really critiqued frederick for that i think the reaction to frederick's attitudes to religion like obviously there were people who were quite upset about frederick's attitudes to religion but i think the reaction was generally like oh good you're willing to just kind of let everyone do what they want let catholics and protestants not kill each other that's a positive let's not fight over that Mm, when i say let everyone do what they want i should mention that frederick was very anti-semitic as were many many christian europeans at this time i think we can go ahead and say most yeah i think we can go ahead and say most one of his big influences in life and we'll talk about voltaire later on was the french philosopher voltaire who is also very anti-semitic so yeah his freedom of religion ideas do not extend that far back to gay art on the same grounds as his summer palace, he had another palace built called the New Palace. He commissioned two major paintings for this palace. One was of Alexander the Great and Hephaestion. All right, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Pokemon cards. <laughs> <laughs> the other, which was in Pride of Place in like the main hall, was Zeus and Ganymede. Okay, yeah. Okay, I'm done now. Right, I could okay. list more, but that's the gay art to give you the idea. Okay. There's just gay art everywhere. To foreshadow a little, no Achilles and Patroclus. There's no art of Achilles and Patroclus, okay. but Achilles and Patroclus this will come up okay. Oh, okay. of course <laughs> <laughs> that's bingo <laughs> although it was designed by frederick himself his summer palace had no quarters for his wife as we've established he had no interest in seeing women really and it was an exclusively male court basically so the summer palace was a place for him to hang out with his male social circle he actively dissuaded the men in that circle from marrying women he even dissuaded the male servants from having relationships with women like he really wanted this to be an exclusively male circle oh okay yeah that's pretty wild it's a bit intense so are there no like female staff at all i don't know if there were female staff and he just didn't want heterosexual relationships between the staff or if there just weren't female staff but i know that he didn't want the male servants having relationships with female servants or with women how was he enforcing that i don't know okay like did you get a job here and you're like oh <laughs> I'm, I'm being the- pressured by my boss <laughs> and also the boss of the country to to date Steve. <laughs> oh, sorry, we're on pressure to date Hans. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how seriously this was like a mm. rule mm. or how much this was just a kind of, you know, Frederick would prefer this didn't happen. Mm. And, you know, maybe if he found out, then you would find yourself transferred away from that. Yeah. And like, even then, like the king would prefer this didn't happen. And I work for the king is functionally a rule, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But if so presumably his like social circle, a nobleman and whatnot. Yeah. You can't just have all of the like young noblemen stop marrying women. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, this was a small subset of, no, like, it's not like this is the main court where all Prussian noblemen are. This is, like, a small subset of Frederick's close friends. And a lot of these men are... Also gay. Also gay. Like, either rumoured to be gay, or we just know straight up they're gay, or... Are a lot of them also from the military? Pretty much all Prussian men are in the military. Uh, Like, if you're a Prussian nobleman, you're in the military. So, yes, but, like, that's just... (laughs) That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, but I was thinking if they're people he met in the military that he mm. might be close to them without them being particularly high up in the noble hierarchy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There definitely was one man named Fredersdorf who he met in the army, who was a musician in the army, mm. who Frederick, I mean, most likely had a relationship with. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we can never know for certain unless somebody writes some erotic letters, which we will talk about later, but I don't have any to Fredersdorf. And, like, he promoted Fredersdorf to essentially his prime minister, and people will sort of say, why would a commoner who was just an army musician be in this position? And there's one quote which I read where somebody says it's because he has a pretty face. Mm. So, like, yeah, some of them were just commoners who Frederick was attracted to. Yeah, which yeah. I guess makes it easier for them to not be married. Yeah, that's true. I think Frederick did eventually marry and leave Frederick's court, but I don't know how common marriage was in this setting. I just know that Frederick didn't want it to be common. Mm. To bring back Voltaire, who was a close friend of Frederick's, he visited Prussia in 1740 and he writes of Frederick's court. Great king, I predicted to you that Berlin would become the new Athens for both the pleasures of the flesh and the intellect. The prophecy has turned out to be quite right. When I saw the loving Algarotti crush in a passionate embrace the handsome Lujak, his young friend, I thought I was seeing Socrates fastened to the rump of Alcibiades. Alrighty. (laughs) Um, So, did Frederick know Voltaire before this? Frederick had been writing to Voltaire since the mid-1730s. Voltaire's a bit older than Frederick, and he'd read Voltaire's writings, like, as a young man and a teenager, and be really interested in them, and he'd been writing to Voltaire for a few years before Voltaire came to Prussia. So, like, yeah, they were friends. And we'll talk a lot about their relationship later on, Mm. because there's a lot to say, and they were very close. Mm -hmm. So that quote of Voltaire's mentions a man named Algarotti. I don't have time to talk about all the individual men who were in Frederick's court at this time and who he may have had relationships with. So I'm going to talk about Algarotti kind of as a stand-in for that. <laughs> you can assume that other people had this same experience. So Algarotti was the son of a Venetian merchant. He would met Frederick in 1739 when he was doing a tour of Europe. The two men had spent just eight days together, but they made an immediate impression on each other. Algarotti wrote to Voltaire, who was a mutual friend, I have seen this adorable prince. I cannot put into words the number of pleasures I have experienced. While Frederick wrote to Voltaire about how much he hoped to reunite with Algarotti as soon as possible. That sounds pretty gay. It does sound pretty gay. And Voltaire thought it sounded pretty gay. Voltaire's response to Frederick shows how he thought this was. He writes to Frederick a letter which reads as though it's addressed to Algarotti. People write weird letters in this time. I don't know why. Frederick at one stage writes letters in the persona of his greyhounds. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
his sister had a, I think it was a spaniel and he had a greyhound and they wrote a few letters back and forth where they'd like talk about philosophy, but in the personas of their dogs. Oh, um, that's <laughs> amazing. Truly outstanding. Yeah, it's pretty great. What are the respective opinions of the dogs? Of what are the philosophical yeah, standards like what are the, the philosophical schools that these dogs belong to? <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> um, do you know the names of these dogs? Uh, I do. Do you want to hear the whole list? I have a list. Oh. <laughs> In that I don't remember which dog wrote the letters, but I do have a long list of the names of Frederick's dogs. Which dog wrote the letters? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any particularly outstanding dog names? My favourite is Hassenfuss. 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 I think that's very beautiful. There's also Superbo. (laughs) What's Hassen? Mm. I don't know. Because Fuss Fuss is is just foot. Wait, I'm going to look up what Hassen is. Okay. Because I'm intrigued. Oh, it's Rabbit. Oh, Rabbit So the dog's name is Rabbit Foot. That's, That's cute. adorable. Yeah, Hassan Twist is my favourite, but yeah, there's many. There's Diana, there's Phyllis. So the dogs can be female. Yeah, a lot of That's the dogs allowed. are female, actually, yeah. I don't know if all, but like most. Okay. Yeah, that's allowed. I mean, he's also very close with his sister. Yeah. So he does, like, accept that women exist and sometimes he gets along with them. But, but we like... have examples that are his sister and several dogs. So... <laughs> yeah, it's not great. He not, doesn't really, really have, like, female friends in his adult life. So are these dogs all greyhounds? They're Italian greyhounds. Yes. <laughs> So does he have like a lot at once or is it one after the other? Or, like, uh, he, I think he usually has like three or four at once. Good, 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 good. But he has them throughout his life. So he has many throughout his life. He's buried alongside 11 of them. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Which is where I got the list. It was the mm. 11 graves that are next to his grave. Yeah. I love this. <laughs> what else do you know about these greyhound lives? Um... Let me picture them. <laughs> So they slept in his bed and they had a very luxurious diet. The servant who looked after them was ordered to refer to them not as do, which is the informal pronoun, but as z, which is the respectful pronoun. That's weird. (laughs) Come on, man. Yeah, I don't know exactly how weird Calm that is down. in like oh, uh, 18th century Germany, but like, I, and I understand it's pretty weird. That's definitely weird in modern German. So uh, Italian greyhounds are like noble dog? Yeah, they've definitely been associated with nobility for like yeah. ever. They're generally like a hunting dog. Mm-hmm. Frederick <laughs> didn't like hunting. He just loved the greyhounds. I can't imagine pets. Italian greyhounds hunting. I don't know what they meant to hunt. They're so little and skinny. Yeah. I guess they could like get in rabbit burrows like ferrets. Yeah. <laughs> so Frederick's favorite dog was called Bish, which means doe, like deer, not yeah, like yeah, bread. Yeah, <laughs> Bish would ride to war with Frederick. So Bish would be with Frederick when he's in like military camps and stuff like that. That does mean that Bish occasionally went into battle. Yes, you're looking worried. Oh, and that's, that's the not answer. right. No, it's not right. Once when Bish was in battle. No. Um, it's okay. Bish will be fine. Okay. Bish does not get harmed in this story. <laughs> but Bish is in battle and Bish is like a fancy dog with a fancy collar on, like clearly an important dog. And so the French soldiers kidnapped Bish. <laughs> <laughs> which battle is this? I don't know the exact battle. It's during the Seven Years' War, which is in like 1750s, 1760s. I think that's the war that the Chevalier Dion yeah, was in yeah. against Prussia. That's true. Yeah. The Chevalier so... Dion was on the French side of this war. So maybe it's probably. <laughs> Probably not, but it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> that the Chevalier kidnapped Frederick the Great's yeah. dog. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Yes. Anyway, so Bish has been kidnapped. Oh, no. And Frederick is distraught. I'm sure he is. His friend Frederick Rudolf Rothenberg went to France to try and negotiate the return of Bish. <laughs> he successfully negotiated Bish's return. This dog's probably going through all kinds of stuff, like being referred to with informal French pronouns. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unacceptable. I, she was apparently a very loud dog, like she barked a lot. Well, she's so, been kidnapped. No, no, just in life. Oh, okay. Like, that's not related to the kidnapping. <laughs> I'm just, like, picturing her complaining when you refer to her with the informal pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awful. Yeah, so Rothenberg bought Biche back to Prussia. He arrived at Sanssouci with Biche. Frederick didn't know he was coming, but when he like stepped into the hallway with Biche, she obviously recognized where Aww. she was and she like leapt out of his arms and ran up to Frederick's room and jumped onto Frederick's Aww. desk where Frederick was sitting there writing letters and they were reunited. That, oh, I don't want to cry. <laughs> yep. Good. Good. We all emotionally yeah, processed right. that. You're allowed to talk about serious things and not dogs <laughs> now. Okay, yeah. good. I do have one more story about Bish, but like, I okay. think it's time we moved on. Okay. <laughs> Maybe like, we'll... And you'll tell me it later or you won't tell me it? I don't know. Yeah, okay, I'll tell you it. <laughs> <laughs> we should go back to talking about Voltaire at some point. Yeah. Should we? Because <laughs> you started talking about Voltaire and then we just veered off wildly into That's dogs. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eli has no time for Voltaire. <laughs> no, I was actually talking about Algarotti, who was the Venetian merchant's son who yeah, Frederick we got met. because they were writing letters in each other's yeah. personas. Oh, yeah, yeah. personas. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that is what Frederick and his sister were doing. So, so Voltaire was writing to Frederick a letter that reads as though it is addressed to Algarotti. Mm-hmm. So he wrote in a poem to Frederick, Cease, Algarotti, to look at other people, the call girls of Venice and the rent boys of Rome. Don't wear yourself out. No longer look for a man. He has been found. So what's the deal with the fact that, like, it's a possible and reasonable thing to make homosexuality or sodomy punishable by death, but also everyone's just like, hey, Frederick, you know your boyfriends. <laughs> like, what's the vibe here? Explain more. Yeah, that's a very good question, and I don't have an easy answer yeah, to that. Like, homosexuality so. was definitely still illegal in Prussia yeah. at this time. Like, it's not as severely punishable. I think it's punishable by maybe whipping and imprisonment, I want to say. Okay. But, yeah, Voltaire is definitely very open and Voltaire has a lot of our source for very open and explicit writing about the fact that Frederick is gay. Yeah. What's Voltaire's sexuality? I'd never heard Voltaire referred to as being like queer or potentially queer but it's like... Yeah. I mean that is a good question and I don't have an easy answer for you (laughs) and I do have a a lot of notes in here about Voltaire and Frederick's relationship. Right. Yeah and I will talk about that more once we've talked about Algarotti Mm because yeah I do think when I was reading from a perspective of researching Frederick the Great and his relationship with Voltaire I didn't find much about the possibility that Voltaire was queer okay but mm. it would be worth talking about okay but yeah no I you have a very valid point that people are quite open about Frederick's sexuality but it's also illegal yeah I guess that's not that weird to me like Mardi Gras went on for like quite a while while it was still illegal to be gay yeah that's um not that uncommon it's just like it's one thing to say like you could technically get away from these things and another thing to kind of summarize what just the general vibe is in mm. like circles that are not this club of you and your like five gay friends yeah yeah and i don't know what the general vibe would have been kind of throughout prussia Mm. i think the general vibe within the aristocracy not just in prussia but across europe is kind of because you're the aristocracy you could kind of do what you want Mm. and that includes like okay yeah there's a law against homosexuality but that only comes into play when like we need it to yeah and we can just ignore it the rest of the time Mm. i don't know if that's a satisfactory answer for you so back to algarotti a few days after frederick william's death frederick wrote to algarotti and he writes my dear algarotti my lot has changed i 
wait you with impatience. Please don't make me pine, Frederick. Algarati described the letter, and this is obviously only a small quote from the letter. To be clear, there's like a long postscript as well. Algarati described the letter to his brother as the most beautiful letter ever written, and he travelled immediately to Berlin to meet Frederick. They then travelled together in the royal coach to Frederick's coronation, which was a position that should have been reserved for Elizabeth, who was not invited. Where is she? Like, if she doesn't have a room in his <laughs> where is she? She's at Rheinsberg, which is okay. a bit out of Berlin, and that's where she lived most of her okay. life when Mary to Frederick. Not bringing your wife to your coronation. I believe she was at the coronation itself, but this was kind of the um procession to the coronation as mm. Frederick was traveling there and she just wasn't a part of that. And yeah. Algarotti was mm. there next to Frederick. Algarotti wrote to his brother that Frederick gave me countless caresses and honored me in a thousand different ways. And they also in their letters, as I said, we get back to refer to each other as Achilles and Patroclus. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is weird. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I don't know. Or is it inconsistent? I don't know. Okay. I didn't check that. Obviously, Why on earth not? <laughs> most of Frederick's letters are in French or German, so okay. like I can't read the primary I'm sources. I'm sure you can. <laughs> I could pick out Achilles and Patroclus. <laughs> I've already spent some time at Frederick's court in Prussia, but in the early 1740s, Frederick was tied up fighting wars, and Algarotti travelled elsewhere throughout Europe, and they gradually spent less and less time together. Frederick compared their separation to, quote, that of lovers whose affectionate passion continues. I mean, I say compared, but like... But yeah, that doesn't sound like a comparison. <laughs> that sounds like a description. Yeah. He probably said it is like in the full quote. I only have the short quote. Algarotti eventually died of tuberculosis in 1764 in Italy, with Frederick making a large contribution towards his memorial. So I want to talk a little bit now about the relationship between Frederick and Algarotti, and we've already gotten the vibe that it is pretty gay. <laughs> and there are definitely, like romantic and erotic overtones in the way they write to each other. Frederick nicknamed Algarotti the Swan of Padua, so he's from Padua in Italy. Scholar Wolfgang Nodobati thinks that this is a reference to the myth of Leda and the Swan, where Zeus takes the form of a swan to rape or seduce, depending on what version of the myth you're encountering, a woman named Leda. This myth was a very common theme of art at the time, including art which is quite erotic. And so the swan was seen as a masculine erotic figure at this time. So Algarotti would often entertain Frederick with bawdy Venetian songs and poetry. Some of the poetry that Frederick wrote for Algarotti is also quite explicit. Tell what? me more. <laughs> So one famous example is titled La Joissance, which translates as The Orgasm. Alrighty. <laughs> That's a very like blunt name for a poem. So this poem came about because Algarotti said to Frederick that Northern Europeans weren't capable of as kind of strong and passionate emotions as Southern Europeans. Okay. And in response, Frederick wrote him this poem. I'll show you the orgasm. <laughs> So this poem describes Algarotti sleeping with the nymph Chloris. So it doesn't actually describe a relationship between Frederick yeah. and Algarotti, but it is just an erotic poem about Algarotti, which is not when you write to a platonic pal, I would say. I guess. Like, I don't know. I don't, know. I don't feel like that would be that out of the question. But also, like, <laughs> in this case, that's not what's happening, I'm sure. So to quote some of this poem, and unfortunately the only translation I could find is a rhyming English translation, which just, like, Oh, yeah, that's terrible. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> so I didn't write down that much of the poem because it was just, like, 
I can't take rhyming translations seriously. They need to be stopped. Well-intentioned, terrible idea. Anyway, this poem. This night, vigorous desire in full measure, Algarotti wallowed in a sea of pleasure. Goes on a bit to talk about how he's sleeping with Chloris and says, Our fortunate lovers transported high above, knowing only themselves in the fury of love, kissing, enjoying, feeling, sighing, and dying, reviving, kissing, then back to pleasure flying. Oh, I'm sorry, this translation is bad. I'm not like confident enough to translate an erotic French poem on my own, but I do want to mention that this is also quite a tame translation. So the word kissing, which comes up a few times in here, can also be translated as having sex. And the word is translated as enjoying can also mean orgasming. So like this is a much more explicit poem than that rhyming translation suggests. And I'm sorry, that's the only translation I could find of it. I do wonder if it is like that bad in the original French. Frederick was not a great poet. Voltaire came to Prussia later on to help Frederick with his French, among other things, and he spends a lot of time complaining about correcting Frederick's grammar and how bad his poems are and that kind of stuff. So, That's yeah, Frederick wrote a lot of poetry, but he's yeah. not, like, amazing at it. So Algorod is like, oh, you can't write the sexy poetry that we can write, and Frederick's like, well, here's this, and Algorod's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's sexy. It's great. <laughs> poem was lost for a long time and it was discovered in a Berlin archive in 2011 and this caused like a pretty big amount of media attention when it was discovered and there was a lot of kind of sensationalist media going oh look Frederick the Great's gay we know this now we have this erotic <laughs> poem Frederick the Great wrote this is brand new information yeah and in reality this is not the only erotic poem yeah. that Frederick wrote to Algarotti yeah. like we already had others we already knew Frederick was interested in men we already knew he was writing erotic letters oh. I did think it was worth commenting that we kind of had that sensationalist reaction to like mm. discovering Frederick was gay and writing erotic poetry when this was just a known fact. Mm. I mean that is something that like sort of like popular media like sensationalistic mm. like documentaries and things do with historical information oh, yeah. anyway. I mean the reason for that is that that's how you get yeah. news about history into <laughs> mainstream media. Yeah. So we do have a lot of letters similar to this one between Frederick and Algarotti. It is worth mentioning that Frederick's biographer Blanning points out Another letter from Frederick to Algarotti, which suggests they didn't have a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. And this writes about their reunion after Frederick William's death, so when Frederick was becoming king, in which Frederick compares their reunion to the reunion between the fictional lovers Maduro and Angelica, who are from an Italian opera, I believe, and then adds that the difference being that it is my intellect alone that participates in this pleasure. Okay. Yeah. I don't really know what to make of that comment. If I should take that to mean that they didn't have a sexual relationship, they just like to write erotic letters to each other yeah so do we have a like concrete evidence of sexual relationships between Frederick and men elsewhere or no okay which obviously is like a very difficult thing yeah to... yeah like Voltaire talks quite openly about Frederick having sexual relationships with men but Voltaire and Frederick did have a falling out which we'll mention in a minute which uh, obviously mm-hmm. affects how Voltaire is going to write about him okay we definitely have a lot of letters with kind of erotic and romantic mm. overtones but nothing that says like yes they had sex yeah I mean I guess like if not the question is was that because of Algarotti or because of Frederick, I guess? Algarotti before meeting Frederick was in England with a couple called Lady Montague and I can't remember the man's name off the top of my head, but he was in England as far as I understand it in a triad with these other two people. Cool. And we could also do an episode on them sometime. So like Frederick is not Algarotti's only relationship with a man that I would assume is romantic, Mm -hmm. but like I don't know if Algarotti was having sexual relationships with men outside Mm -hmm. of his relationship with Frederick. And like that is the ongoing 
problem that we often face on this podcast that you just can't prove whether or not people had sex and like, should you? I don't know. So it's time to talk about Voltaire. We've mentioned Voltaire several times. So Voltaire was a French philosopher who was 18 years Frederick's senior. And I mentioned that in Frederick's youth, he read a lot of Voltaire's works. He was really impressed with Voltaire. When he was in his 20s, he had the names of his two favorite authors written on the roof of his study. One was Voltaire. The other was Horace, the Roman poet. So in 1736, Frederick and Voltaire began to write letters to each other, and Voltaire's ideas inspired a lot of Frederick's own writing, and Frederick writes a lot of philosophical writing and stuff like that. Frederick also used Voltaire as a sounding board for a lot of his writing, including one project that no longer exists, but which he describes as a tragedy about, quote, the tender and constant friendship of Nisus and Euryalus. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned mm-hmm. Nisus and Euryalus before as a classical queer couple, mm-hmm. so this piece of writing unfortunately no longer exists, yeah. but I'm very curious as to what he wrote about them but that's lost to us if it ever was even completed if it was more than just an idea and a letter to Voltaire after four years of correspondence Frederick and Voltaire met for the first time in September 1740 of their meeting Voltaire wrote for four years you have been my mistress and the letters between Frederick and Voltaire show that they're like very very taken with each other so Frederick writes for example Voltaire has the eloquence of Cicero the mildness of Pliny the wisdom of Agrippa (laughs) Voltaire, in turn, says about Frederick that he thinks like Marcus Aurelius and writes like Cicero. So they're really into Cicero, apparently. Man, why can't these like 18th century Prussian or European people express affection to each other without using the classics <laughs> as a go-between? They can't. They can't. <laughs> it's not an option. You construct yeah. elaborate classical <laughs> allusions to... <laughs> Yep. So in 1750, Voltaire came to Berlin for an extended stay. As I mentioned, he was there to help Frederick with his French, but also obviously just because they are very close to each other. And he was appointed as Frederick's Chamberlain. So that's quite a high up position in Prussia. Voltaire wrote to his niece that he was heading to, quote, a marriage after flirtations of so many years. And his description of his arrival in Prussia has kind of like a very similar, very over the top tone about how he's feeling about Frederick. He writes, I arrived in Potsdam, the big blue eyes of the king, his lovely smile, his seductive voice, the aura of his five victories, his avowed pleasure in seclusion, in work, in writing verse and prose, and finally also the marks of his friendship, which made my head spin. And he goes on and on and on for quite a while. Like this quote just continues. Mm. And then he says, all this turned my head. I surrendered to him out of passion, out of infatuation and without qualification. So you can see why I said we should probably talk about the possibility yeah. that Voltaire was queer. Because that um, that's pretty gay. That is pretty gay. I'll just kind of wrap up the relationship between Voltaire and Frederick and then we can talk about that a bit more. Mm-hmm. So... The infatuation that Voltaire expresses didn't last long once Voltaire arrived in Berlin. He was disappointed to spend a lot of his time correcting Frederick's bad French. He'd been hoping to kind of spend a lot more time on philosophy and intellectual pursuits. So he was quite frustrated. The relationship between them began to break down. They eventually began to argue and insult each other in public. It all culminated in Frederick having one of Voltaire's pamphlets publicly burned by a hangman. And eventually Voltaire became involved in a scandal investing in Saxon government bonds at a time when Prussia was at war with Saxony and he left Berlin. So he resigned his post as Chamberlain. He did voluntarily leave Prussia, but like it wasn't really that much of a choice Mm -hmm. given the scandal. He wrote to Frederick when he returned the insignia of his office as Chamberlain. This is how a lover in his extreme passion returns the portrait of his mistress. 
They eventually began writing to each other again a few years later and they restored their friendship, but they never actually met in person again. Mm. So as I mentioned, Voltaire is quite open about the fact that Frederick is gay. He's a source of a lot of our information about Frederick's sexuality and the general homosexuality of Frederick's social circle. But he does also write that when he himself traveled to Frederick's court in 1740, he was, quote, quite uninterested in these affairs of Greece, conscripted only by Frederick himself. So Voltaire denies his own involvement in the homosexuality of that circle. And his attitudes to homosexuality are often quite negative. He describes it in his writings as a vice which would destroy mankind if it were general, a sordid outrage against nature. Conversely, however, he is much more accepting of it when he's writing to Frederick. And so in one of his letters, he compares Frederick to Julius Caesar. And this is written about the same time as that quote I just read you. And he writes, I love Caesar in the arms of the mistress who yields to him. I laugh and I'm not perturbed to see him, young and attractive, under and above Nicomedes. So if you don't know anything about Caesar and Nicomedes... Then you can listen to our episode on Julius (laughs) Caesar. You can, but Caesar is believed to have been the lover of Nicomedes in his youth. So it's another classical allusion to a male-male relationship. And what he's saying is like... I love Frederick, whether he's with a woman or whether he's with a man, I don't care. Mm. Yeah, so we do see this contradiction in Voltaire that he has a lot of gay friends. He's writing that he's absolutely fine with it. His own letters can be quite like flirtatious or like we've seen how he writes about Frederick Mm. where he compares going to meet Frederick literally to getting married. But at the same time, he has these writings that are quite anti-gay. And after he's had this falling out with Frederick, he writes about Frederick's sexuality I don't know whether I would say negatively, but it can be seen as being an attack on Frederick that he starts writing publicly about Frederick's sexuality. So I want to read one quote from his writings about that, where he talks about Frederick's court. And he says, When his majesty is dressed and booted, he summons two or three favourites. Whoever has thrown a handkerchief then spends a quarter of an hour in a -a tete-a-tete. Things cannot be taken the whole way, because when he was a prince, his love affairs were punished so brutally by his father that he suffered irreparable damage, so he can no longer play an active role and has to make do with the passive. Mm. Now, I just want to not talk about that comment about his father for a minute. I just wanted to include that so you knew that Voltaire was explicitly talking about a homosexual relationship there. Mm -hmm. But the way he talks about it, where he's talking about sort of Frederick summoning a whole lot of favourites and then he throws a handkerchief at one to mark whichever one he's going to go and sleep with, I would not say that's a positive portrayal of homosexuality. Yeah. And this sort of writing is a lot of the explicit comments we have about kind of homosexuality in Frederick's court. Mm -hmm. I definitely don't want to therefore write it off and say Frederick's court wasn't homosexual. This was just slander spread by Voltaire. Mm. But I think we do have to keep that in mind. And that there may be some exaggeration. Yeah. I mean, certainly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I assume Frederick's not just gathering attractive young men and then throwing one of them a handkerchief and then they go into the next room and have sex. I definitely have read biographers and... To the credit of historians, not modern biographers, modern biographers are willing to accept Frederick's sexuality, but older biographers would definitely use this as a way to dismiss Mm -hmm. Frederick's sexuality and say, well, obviously he'd had this fight with Voltaire and therefore Voltaire wanted to spread this slander about him. Mm -hmm. So more so than with Algarotti or Cata or many of the other men in Frederick's life, some of which I've mentioned, many of which I haven't, I found that scholars writing about Frederick kind of skirt around the possibility of Frederick and Voltaire actually being in a relationship 
relationship. So Blanning, for example, kind of lays out what happened, puts all these quotes from their letters and so forth, but doesn't actually then interrogate and yeah. say what was the relationship between them. And in a few scholars I read, I found that was the attitude. Mm-hmm. Which is really interesting <laughs> because weird. the narrative feels so much like they were writing to each other and slowly building up romantic tension and then they met they tried the relationship and it didn't work out and then they broke it off yeah like you don't need to add anything to that narrative to make that a narrative about two men who are in love yeah i don't really have a good explanation for this but my suspicion is that for example when you're writing about Algarotti or carter these are not famous men except for the fact that they had relationships yeah. with frederick so it's very easy to go oh yeah francesco Algarotti, if he was gay well who's francesco Algarotti? that doesn't affect anything to know if he's gay or not whereas if someone says voltaire was gay we have all these writings by Voltaire, including some about sexuality, but also more generally, he's just very big influence on Western philosophy. And suddenly, if you start saying Voltaire was gay, then you have to put that lens over all these other pieces of information and knowledge we have about Voltaire. And I suspect that a scholar writing a biography of Frederick the Great is just not willing to get involved in that. Mm. That's my theory. I don't know if that's the reason or not. Yeah, because it does feel weird that they wouldn't either conclusively prove or con- like. Obviously, you can't conclusively. Yeah, but they would. They wouldn't make any effort they to affirm or refute. Yeah, 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 or at least say here's the possibility. Here's some arguments yeah. for and against or anything. Yeah, mm. yeah, and like obviously there are people talking about this. I was just surprised by how it was kind of stepped back from by a lot of the people I read. Hmm. So I was going to tell you all my dog stories before we wrapped up Frederick's life. We've told most of the dog stories, but I will tell you one more dog story and then we'll talk a bit about kind of how Frederick's sexuality was interpreted after his death. So is it another story about Biche? It is Biche. Biche. It is Biche. It's about Biche at war again. (laughs) (laughs) Biche goes to war. During the Seven Years' War, Frederick was at a military camp and he decided to go out riding from the camp. And Biche would often go out riding with him so she would sit on the saddle in front of him as he rode around. Yes. <laughs> so he's out riding with Biche and they spot a group of Hungarian dragoons close by. Hungarians are the enemy of Prussia at this time. So he sees the dragoons and he has to hide under a bridge to be hidden from the dragoons while but they Biche pass is loud. by. But as I've mentioned, Biche is a very loud dog and he is very scared that Biche will give them away. And he says to Biche, we must be silent, my lady, or we will be dead. And in this one instance in her life, Biche was silent. The dragoons passed by and they were safe. And Frederick returned to the camp and declared that Biche was a war hero and his greatest <laughs> friend and she saved his life. <sighs> and, yep, that's it. That's the story. Okay, good. That was so good. <laughs> good. So... Frederick's final order as king, kind of still on the topic of dogs, was that a cushion be fetched for his dog, which was at the foot of his bed. And Frederick passed away on August 17th, 1786. When was he born again? 1712. So he lived to his 70s. Yeah, okay. He He had had a long life. He had a pretty good run. His wish was to be buried at Sanssouci beside 11 of his dogs. His successor, his nephew, Frederick William II, had him buried with previous members of the Prussian royal family. His body was moved during World War II because there were fears that it would be bombed. And he was eventually, in the 90s, I believe, reinterred beside his dogs as he had always wanted. That is good. And people leave potatoes on his grave because he's credited with introducing potatoes to Prussia. (laughs) There are like these photos of this nice stone that says Frederick the Great. It's got like some flowers and they're just like miscellaneous (laughs) potatoes. They called him a Kartoffelkönig, the potato king. Yes! That's a, <laughs> There's a little picture of him out of that came out quite oh. recently. It's very cute. 
the Potato King. Yeah. So Frederick passed away in 1786. During his final illness, he was attended by a doctor called Johann George Zimmermann. Zimmermann had admired Frederick throughout his life. He was very moved, I think moved to tears when he met Frederick. So Frederick was like a big idol of his. And he published a book about Frederick after Frederick's death. And in that book, he notes that everyone, including Frederick's close friends, quote, were of the opinion that he had loved, as it is pretended, Socrates loved Alcibiades. So the as it is pretended there gives you an idea that Zimmerman was not on board with this idea that Frederick had been gay or apparently also not on board with the idea of a relationship between Socrates and Alcibiades, which is yet another classical queer reference to add to this episode. I mean, famously, Um, when Alcibiades got into bed beside Socrates, Socrates wasn't having it. That's true. Yeah. But I feel like these a lot of these classical references don't go very in-depth. Oh, yeah, um, sure, yeah. yeah like, I yeah. know this is about the perception rather than that. Yeah, yeah. So Zimmerman goes on to argue that Frederick was heterosexual, but that he had contracted gonorrhea from a sex worker during his youth, which had led to an operation not long after his marriage, which left his genitals, to quote Zimmerman, just a little bit mutilated. Alrighty. And left Frederick wrongly convinced that he had been castrated and could no longer have sex. Zimmerman argues that Frederick thus feigned a loss of interest in his wife and for the rest of his life pretended to have an active sex life with men in order to continue to appear like a virile masculine man, although he could no longer sleep with women. I mean, I don't see why you can't pretend to have sex with women then. <laughs> if he's still saying that it's fake, like... <laughs> Why not fake why th- why with men? your wife? I mean, I, I guess the reason for that is that there would be an expectation that you would have children. Yeah, like Frederick and Elizabeth never had any kids. And I guess if he was feigning sleeping with his wife, people would be like, why isn't she pregnant? Whereas if everyone knew he wasn't interested in his wife. Like, to be clear, I think Zimmerman's explanation oh. <laughs> is nonsense. But I, I do understand the logic that he's No, surely it would be that hard there. to pretend that you had a bunch of, like, you know, liaisons with, like, lower class women. I feel like that doesn't really make sense with your wife. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like he could just have easily feigned a loss of interest in his wife and relationships with like female sex workers. And why? Why feign relationships with men? So yeah, Zimmerman's claims are obviously nonsense. Yeah. The doctor who prepared Frederick's body for burial reported that his genitals appeared totally healthy and this claimed operation had never occurred. Mm. So most likely Zimmerman's claims just come from homophobia and unwillingness to believe that his idol was gay. But you did mention earlier that Voltaire mentioned something about this as well, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah, that is true. I don't know if those two things are connected or not, but like multiple people. So the doctor prepared Frederick's body for burial and also all the people who were involved in washing the body, I think there was three of them, all confirmed that his genitals seemed unharmed. So I don't know if Voltaire just also happened to make the same claim or what the situation is there. So I guess either Zimmerman was aware of that and picked up on it as a convenient thing to use yeah. to justify the perception of Frederick he wanted to spread mm. or like sort of the idea of a man who's sleeping with men having some kind of mm, something mm. physically wrong with their genitals or like their bodies in general isn't that yeah uncommon and might have been a convenient cultural association that's true yeah that's very yeah. true and Voltaire's writing was published before Frederick's death so like that quote I wrote from Voltaire was around in public before Zimmerman wrote this okay that's interesting that so, was actually something I was going to ask earlier mm. um, was when we were talking about the content of these letters and sort of how in that 
society we had people getting burned to death for homosexuality yeah. but also like fairly open expressions of it and so some of this correspondence with Voltaire was published so it's not, not his correspondence just... with Voltaire that's yeah. published that quote I read about him throwing handkerchiefs to choose his favourite to go and sleep with mm-hmm. that wasn't a letter that was just Voltaire's writing of his own bat oh okay right he just so decided he... to publish this because he was annoyed at Frederick in what format publishing just like pamphlets was very normal at the time like you just publish a pamphlet with your political beliefs or a pamphlet with some cartoons or a pamphlet with poetry or whatever or a pamphlet smearing a political figure oh yeah or like yeah, pamphlets smearing yeah. political figures were also very common and I think this one came out in an anonymous pamphlet from yeah. memory that was later attributed attributed to, to Voltaire yeah, yeah yeah so as we've kind of just talked about during Frederick's life and also in the decades following his death his attraction to men was quite openly known and talked about it was kind of just an accepted fact about him an early biography written not long after his death by his contemporary Anton Frederick Bushing says he had begun early to develop a distaste for women because of this he lost much sensual pleasure but regained it through the company of men so that's an example of you know how open that conversation was mm. immediately after Frederick's death and during his life modern scholar Bodhi Ashton has some interesting things to say about homosexuality and Prussian masculinity in the 18th century and why it was possible for Frederick to be kind of recognized as this great general and this really strong ruler of Prussia and generally admired by his subjects but at the same time be known to be homosexual and why those things didn't contradict each other. And he argues that Prussian masculinity and therefore the image of Frederick as a strong ruler is constructed through a much broader range of traits and behaviours than just sexuality and that Frederick fulfilled masculine ideas of military honour and doing your duty and all those kinds of things that were much more important to Prussian culture than who he might have been sleeping with. He also goes on to note that even though Frederick William refers to Frederick's hobbies, things like music and Mm. French dressing gowns or whatever, um, or, you know, his intellectual pursuits like literature and philosophy as being effeminate frederick williams attitude should not be taken as the norm for the time so these intellectual and artistic pursuits were very normal for aristocratic men around europe at this time and they weren't necessarily things that would have marked frederick out as being effeminate or as being not able to be a strong ruler so ashton's argument and you kind of i think brought this up before of like why could frederick sleep with men and Mm. have this be fine even though it was illegal he's kind of looking at why could frederick sleep with men and still be accepted as a ruler of the country his argument is basically that sexuality was a relatively small factor in how someone's identity was understood in Prussia at that time and other actions, especially military actions, were much more important. And we've talked about how Frederick fought a lot of wars and was mm. quite aggressive in how he approached those wars, for example, his invasion of Silesia, and therefore his sexuality just wasn't that big of a deal. I can't say for sure whether Ashton's argument is correct or not because that would require a lot more research into the culture of Prussia and the construction of masculinity in Prussia and so forth, but I do think it's an interesting point. I guess it might have been similar to how Voltaire mm-hmm. was putting aside whether or not Voltaire was queer or not for the moment for the sake of ease, was quite happy to let speak positively of Frederick's sexuality when mm-hmm. they were friends, but then smeared him when they weren't. Presumably if Frederick had been a less liked king, regardless of being masculine or not in those pursuits, mm-hmm. then that perhaps would have become an issue. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I guess it's because he was quite well liked in all other aspects of being yeah. king. People didn't really care if he was sleeping with men or not. Yeah. Interestingly, as time passed, so if we look at the 19th century and the early 20th century, biographers started being very reluctant to talk about Frederick's sexuality. They either wouldn't address it or they would, you know, say there are these rumors or there is this slander, but like 
it's not the case. In 1915, for example, German historian Otto Hinzer argued that Frederick's disinterest in women was just normal for 18th century intellectuals, and some scholars would even revert to just taking Zimmerman's claims at face value. It was quite refreshing in my research to discover that since about the 1980s or the 1990s, this has not been the norm, and biographers of Frederick are very open about his sexuality and very willing to have useful conversations about it, which I think is very nice given how often we come across someone who is obviously queer and who still has scholars to this day writing biographies where they either ignore it or downplay it or something like that. It's interesting that you talk about this idea of the culture of Prussia mm. being less based on sexuality in terms of expressing masculinity. I wonder then, because um, you said that he was succeeded by his nephew. Yeah, yeah. Was that a particularly common thing in Prussia? Do you know? I don't know. Like, obviously, Frederick's father was king before Frederick, and Frederick's grandfather was king before that. So at least for the past three generations, it had been a direct father to son line. I came across surprisingly little writing about the fact that Frederick had no is like surprisingly little from the time of people raising concerns about that fact yeah see that's that's what's sort of interesting me there is yeah if, i guess if that's not as big of a deal the idea of it being absolutely vital to have a direct patrilineal heir then i guess yeah the sexuality of your king is less important and frederick did also have several brothers and possibly if frederick had been an only child it would have also been very different because it would have been really important for him to have a male child but because he had several brothers and those brothers had kids mm. it wasn't as much of a worry perhaps that yeah. he wasn't having kids and i guess we did mention earlier that we are in sort of the post-enlightenment era of europe and mm. the thing you mentioned earlier about how people are starting to challenge the divine right of kings and so i guess then that individual line mm. of kings is less important i don't know if that is true in prussia like obviously in france at this time like mm. frederick died right before the french revolution yeah like obviously in france at that time that's being challenged but I think Prussia was a bit further behind in those conversations from what I gathered so I don't know if that would be the case yeah my suspicion is that it has more to do with the fact that he had brothers with kids to be honest yeah that does create a lot less tension right yeah yeah so we've talked about how he treated his wife terribly yes. and very publicly did this. Mm -hmm. And we've also talked about how he was generally quite loved by his country. I'm surprised that there was apparently or was there backlash about his treatment of his wife. I have been thinking a bit about Edward II while we've been talking about mm -hmm. this because he was also a gay king who had yeah. male favourites. Particularly talking about him having his like male lover with him on the way to the coronation mm, instead of his wife, yeah. which is also something that Edward II did, except for Edward II, it ended a lot more poorly. Yeah. Um, and obviously part of that was due to the fact that Edward II like, could not run a country. But also like his wife's family was very offended mm. by his treatment of her and that was a huge ongoing issue. Was there no public reaction to how who treated Elizabeth was her family not like as far as I know there wasn't too much of a public backlash and I think part of that would have been that her family was a much lower status than would be expected of someone who would marry a king and part of the reason for that was that Frederick had disgraced himself by trying to run away okay. when conversations had been going on previously about his marriage to a much more mm. higher up person the princess of England so I think because her family was a lower status and possibly therefore may have just been willing to put up with whatever put up with that because their sister was now married to the king and that would have increased their status they may have not kicked up as much of a fuss mm -hmm. i don't know if that's the case i'm just speculating here yeah but that would be my guess but yeah as far as i know that wasn't a big concern mm -hmm. from a public perspective it 
does seem strange that it wouldn't, even if it didn't have huge political consequences, tarnish his reputation at all. To yeah. just have him meet his wife and be like, you're fat yeah. in court. Yeah, I, I didn't come across much about it. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, potentially the court didn't care about Elizabeth. Yeah, that's potentially true as well. Which is sad for Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think Elizabeth had a good life, unfortunately. Yeah, mm. and I mean, particularly if she wasn't getting to come to court. All that often. Yeah. All that often. She was at the main Prussian court most oh, of the time. Oh, she was at and court. He wasn't. She just yeah. wasn't at, like, the, the, he the was gay... At, yeah, so he was in Potsdam where he had his mm. gay circle and she was in Berlin where court generally okay. was. Okay, okay, yeah. right. So it's more that he just wasn't interested in court and didn't come to court very often. Okay. Yeah, so I guess his reputation among court probably wouldn't have been yeah. amazing. But I, he's I mean, not interested in it. That's true. But on the other hand, if his reputation is he's always out fighting wars generally winning wars he's quite good at that then by being away and doing things that look impressive from afar i guess that's also good for reputation yeah a mixed bag returning a little bit to voltaire Mm -hmm. so we we sort of said that scholars will kind of like put this information out here but Mm -hmm. won't particularly analyze the relationship too much and maybe you guys felt differently but i feel like we kind of did that a little bit Um, obviously we're yeah. like a lot more implicitly open to the possibility of queerness there given all of this, but I wouldn't mind sort of discussing that a bit more. Okay. Um, yeah. With some of Frederick's earlier relationships, we talk specifically about how although close relationships amongst sort of like young mm. men in that circle were quite normal, his were noted as being outside yeah. the norm. And so we could kind of go from that, you know, it was a pretty safe bet that this was a like queer sort of yeah. thing going on. I don't want to be... The those historians who are like that's just how people wrote letters back then but I, I do think that we do need to be a little more critical and aware of cultural differences and just being mm. like that sounds gay to me yeah. in 2020 we've discussed before and here but not for a long time there's a difficulty of if we have a sample of a bunch of really effusive writing and some of it was by men who were sleeping together or who were in like queer relationships of some sort and some of it was just normal for the time because we can't magically know what was queer Mm. then it's difficult to kind of actually figure out what was normal for the time yeah, and what sort of crosses the line of what friends wouldn't write to each other. And like, I'm sure that we have some idea of this, but I don't feel like we have enough of an idea to make that kind of call. To just be like, yeah, that's gay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it becomes like, as you said, in Frederick's earlier life, when we have, for example, Wilhelmina sort of saying, I had questions about this relationship with Mm. him and Keith or whatever. In Frederick's earlier life, it's easier to say, for example, that those relationships with Keith and Cutter were not the norm. Mm. But I think in his later life, because he now is... He sets the norm. Yeah, exactly. He is the king. He's set up this court. And like, he set up this all-male social circle and there are pamphlets saying, hey, that's gay. Yeah. But sort of within that social circle, like Voltaire's obviously a part of that circle, it's much harder to say, you know, which members of that circle were in relationships. Mm. They were all in this all-male social circle where that's the norm now. So, yeah, it's very hard once you're in that setting where they're writing these erotic and effusive letters to each other, which may just have been the norm for that social circle. And I think this is just an ongoing problem we run up against where there's so much cultural context to how people conduct their relationships Mm. that, like... As a podcast that produces an episode every two weeks, we can't possibly gain all the cultural context necessary to say for sure if a letter was the norm or not. And even people who have been researching Prussia their entire lives, I don't think are fully, you know, qualified or fully capable of doing that. And also, like, the boundaries between one kind of relationship and the next are incredibly permeable. Like, people in a hundred years are going to, you know, uncover the messages Jason and I sent each other and be like, oh, this is so gay. I'm like, Jason and I are not in a relationship. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean, I guess that's another point. It's like, even if we have the cultural context, like, you can never know what the vibe of a relationship was. Yeah, like, especially... specifically with Voltaire talking about how, oh, I'm coming to you, like, you know, we're getting married or whatever. Yeah. When Jason and I first moved in together, we constantly referred to us as being a married couple. Yeah. Because we just set up a house together, but we weren't, like... <laughs> But you were not, in fact, in a relationship. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. people have been making these kinds of jokes for forever. Yeah, forever. yeah. That's yeah. just how people are. So it could have just been like yeah. a, a joke that they had. Although, um, if we're going to use Jason and I as a direct historical comparison to <laughs> Frederick the Great and Voltaire, which one would you like we, to be? I'm not interacting with that. It disgusts me. Um, <laughs> I guess what we do need to know there is that we're both queer. Yeah, and the way we interact with each other is definitely influenced by that. Even though we're not like being queer together. <laughs> and so maybe even if Voltaire and Frederick weren't dating, it does indicate a attitude towards, you know, talking about an effusive friendship. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think we'll wrap things up there. We've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And I'm Jason. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our content on Podbean, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave us a review because that really helps us to reach a wider audience. We also have a very exciting announcement, which is that we have a new website. So you can now find all of our content linked there, along with the transcripts of our earlier episodes, sources for our episodes, and links to all our social media and so forth. That's at queerasfact.com. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact, and you can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. And if you really love this podcast, you can also buy some Queer as Fact merch on our Redbubble store, or you can become a patron. And I'd like to thank some of our patrons today who have contributed to Queer as Fact and helped to support us. Thanks to Laura, Sydney, Wendy, and Livy for supporting this podcast. We really appreciate it. We are especially thankful for our patrons as we've been able to purchase new sound equipment, which hopefully you are aware of by how good this episode sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem clan of the Boomerang and pay my respects to their elders past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast was recorded. We'll be back on the 15th of June when Eli will be talking to us about the Greek mythological figures Achilles and Patroclus. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then. <laughs>